All right. There you have it. So um, this evening I wanted to talk about um, this interesting term that we find in Dharma practice called ahipasako, which basically means come and see for yourself, which is really what meditation is all about is come and have a look. So this word translates as this idea of we're coming into our own experience and we're trying to, to look around a little bit and see what's happening. And so... That's the whole spirit of, of the Buddhist teachings, which is something that we're usually not used to because usually when we come into a spiritual community or certainly religion, it's usually taught or passed down that we have the answers uh, and if you, you need to agree with our system of thinking, uh, there's not a lot of room for debate, right, typically. But uh, Dharma practice, so the way the Buddha taught, he would often say, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, investigate for yourself. If you find what I say to be true and useful, great. And if you don't, fine, no big deal. So that's not something that we hear so much, right? That's usually not how the world is, right? Sort of like, I have the answer, you need to learn it. This is how it is. Uh, And so what we find in this question around practice is, is something I want to talk about a little bit and try to tie them together if I can and I get this question a lot, so I wanted to bring it up, is that you know, we have these two aspects of mindfulness which are usually known as concentration and investigation. And so mindfulness and concentration, we have this kind of, these two aspects of the practice, and it's kind of chicken and egg. Does mindfulness lead to concentration, or does concentration lead to mindfulness? What's the difference, and how do they work together? Because if we want to do this ahipasako, if we want to kind of understand the mind, which I think is kind of what we want to do, if we want to understand our life, we want to understand our challenges, we want to understand our mind, we have to take a look at it and see what it's doing so that we can make necessary adjustments to improve the quality of our experience, therefore improving the quality of our lives and our relationships and really everything. So there's kind of some inquiry that needs to happen. It's not like you just, you know, ask us and you should just agree with what I'm saying and just think that it's true and just walk out and expect any results. And there's lots of theories and there's lots of different teachers and a lot of, this is one area where concentration and mindfulness, there's a wide range of views and opinions around this. I have a very liberal, I don't think you need that much concentration to be mindful. Where some people think you need to be able to really practice and you need to be able to stay with the breath for five minutes and you need to be able to ladder count upwards and backwards and you need to be able to have these really amazing concentration skills to do mindfulness or vipassana. I don't really find that to be the case. I don't think you have to be that great at focusing your attention to be able to practice mindfulness. You need to have some. So concentration, of course, is also a troubling term Because Buddhist concentration, if I could call that, if I could coin that phrase, Buddhist concentration actually means a relaxed attention, a relaxed presence. Now, when I hear the word concentration, I don't think relax. I think the opposite. I think hypervigilance. I think pit bull lockjaw, you know, right? Like I'm just going to grab the breath and I'm going to just like fucking get it. And if I can't get it, because I can't get it, then I get frustrated. You know, it's like I'm always trying to grab at it. You do that at all? You know, it's, it's, it's very, not very helpful. 
So, you know, how do we find a concentration or the term that I prefer the most is called collectedness. How do we be collected? How do we be here? Or even let's be really liberal. Say, how do we mostly be here? I'm mostly here. I'm sitting. I can feel my body. It feels a little cool. That's pleasant, neutral. I'm here on the train. I'm breathing in. I'm thinking about my week. You know, collected. All the pieces are kind of gathered. Gathered attention, some people call it. And once we're able to do that, then we can start to investigate, which again is another word that's maybe not so helpful. The Pali term is Dhamma Vitaya, which means to investigate the Dharma, which means to investigate the nature of experience. And once you're collected, once you're present, you can sort of do that a little bit. You can investigate what's happening. And I, I, and I like this analogy because I think it's fairly true. When I think of investigation, I think of like those, those crime shows or like, like uh, you know, I watched American Gangster again recently where they have like, or The Sopranos where they have like all the boards in the room and they have all the pictures of the people's bosses and they have this whole investigation. Like I would like to do that with my life. You know, like, like, like advanced trauma therapy, just like a room with boards and pictures and timelines and all of it. <laughs> Right, that kind of investigation, right? Which I've done some of that, and I find it to be very helpful. So it, it, it's a kind of looking and seeing. And so when we think of this term vipassana, which is also can be translated as dhamma vichaya, it's also the second factor of awakening, which comes right after mindfulness, where we, we begin to investigate what it is that's happening in the context of present time experience, right? And then we have tons of lists in Buddhism of ways to practice. So we could start with the Four Noble Truths as a investigation. And, you know, we could say the five factors, five spiritual faculties as an investigation, the four foundations of mindfulness, the 12 links of dependent origination. You could, all of these lists, they're not like Buddhist dogma, but they're things to investigate to see whether they're true or whether you're experiencing them. Even the word true is tricky, isn't it? Is it true? It's not that, it's not that the Buddha is asking you to think if it's true like you agree with it, but truth in the sense of is it happening? Is it true in that sense? Do you notice that? Do you notice that you're breathing in? Pretty easy one. You got that one. That's easy. Do you notice that you're breathing out? Okay. Do you notice that you have a body? Do you notice that your body has feelings and sensations? Do you know and recognize that some of these sensations you like and are pleasant sensations and you want to have more of those? Do you recognize that you have unpleasant feelings and you want less of those? That's pretty easy. You could go to your first Dharma class and be like, holy shit, I totally hate pain. No idea. You know? And so when we look at these lists, you know, oftentimes like in academic uh, dharma circles, which I've been mostly interested in the last couple of years, is actually they're, they're, they're known as what they call polyformulas, is that anytime you'd see a series of terms, often in the Pali canon, in the Buddhist teachings, they would pluck that out and say, oh, this is important. These four terms show up often. They must mean something. So then they make a list out of them. Four Noble Truths show up a lot in the Buddhist teachings. Five aggregates show up a lot. So they're called formulas because they're, they're sequences of experiences that we want to be able to recognize as being true or useful. Right? 
So like again, the Four Noble Truths, right? Has anybody recognized that life is often difficult? Dukkha, right? The, the truth of Dukkha. Not like, do you agree with me, but have you noticed that life is hard? Have you noticed that you don't get what you want sometimes? Have you noticed that you often get what you don't want? Have you noticed that you lose things that you care about? Have you noticed that you get things that you don't like? Right? Right, okay, cool, got that one. Right, this is the truth of dukkha, the, something that we're being asked to recognize as part of experience. And then we look at, well, what, is, what do we do with that truth? Well, we don't like it. And we, uh, we hate it. And we, we cling to pleasant and we push away pain and we have this strong craving in our system that wants things to be different than the way they are. Have you ever been in an experience that you didn't like and you wanted shit to be different? 17 times already today? Yeah, of course, there's that craving that there's a, there's a difficulty that arises in our experience and, we, and we, we get caught up in thinking and strategies and ways to how to get rid of that. I need to get rid of this and I need to have that. I need to get rid of these things, I need to have these things. And this tanha, this, this Pali word tanha, arises because there's dukkha. If things were easy all the time, you wouldn't want it to be different, would you? If everything was just a totally heaven realm and we just were blissed out and everything was just cool, you wouldn't crave for things to be different. There would be no tanha without any dukkha. You would just would be cool. But you're not cool, are you? Oh, you're a fucking mess, like the rest of us. That's okay. That's okay, we have practices for that too. Right? But we need to recognize that there's this, that we get caught up in that, and there's a lot of ways that happens. It's just like, my leg hurts and I don't like it. You know, I don't want the rain, I don't like the weather, I don't like the comment my girlfriend just made. Like, there's so many things I don't like. And so we can get caught into behaviors around that, strategies around that. We can, get, we can get caught up in a lot of destructive behaviors to try to get rid of something that's actually really not that bad. Just because we're so used to that. Craving. And this is what causes suffering, the Buddha said. It's not that craving equals sign suffering, because craving oftentimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes craving is quite fun and I like it. Right? I like hating the person who just cut me off. Kind of enjoy that a little bit sometimes. Right. So we're being asked to notice that that arises at times, and we want to be able to recognize that. We want to be able to not indulge it, to not resist it, right. and we want to be able to, to to notice what happens if we do that. The third noble truth, nibbana, destruction of that craving, or niroda which sometimes translates as uh, either destruction of craving, destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion, or it can be the experience of Nibbana, which is a sense of cooling down. And that the, the fire of greed, of wanting so badly and get, wanting to get rid of so badly, hatred and delusion, it, it cools down to the point where we're like, all right, I'm, I'm cool. You maybe had moments of... You maybe had probably several Third Noble Truth moments during the meditation where you had a sense that this is okay to be here. It's no big deal. It's pretty good. I'm okay. You know? 
usually we think of this as like Nibbana or Nirvana or enlightenment. Like, you know, it's gotten to be so ped- on such a high pedestal that we think what the Buddha's trying to have us do is have this kind of, you know, major, major experience. But I think that uh, it's really very ordinary and we oftentimes overlook that. We overlook that oftentimes when things are okay or we feel good or we feel content. We don't think to ourselves, oh man, I'm, I'm not experiencing any hatred right now. This is so great. And we just kind of overlook it or we don't recognize that. Third noble truth. And then of course the fourth noble truth, the whole path. We don't maybe recognize it as a whole system of, 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 of you know, cognition or views about how things are. Uh, and behaviors that we can engage in and meditative training that we can do to kind of change everything for ourselves. And, and, and this, the neuroscientists would call that neuroplasticity. Is that your brain, you can actually change the physical structure of your brain through meditation practices. Pretty cool. So nothing's fixed. As uh, Donnie from The Big Lebowski would say, nothing's fucked here, dude. <laughs> I watched that again recently. Nothing's fucked here, dude. Like, it's all amendable. You're not screwed. Although sometimes you feel, sometimes I feel like I'm totally screwed or the universe is out to get me or somebody's, there's always somebody out to get me. Right? And so what we want to be able to do in meditation, this we want to be able to come and take a look for yourself. Come and see Come and have a look. And so the thing about Dharma that's so interesting is that the Buddhist teaching or the, the system of experience that's being offered is probably more like science than it is anything else. Sort of a, a science of experience where you can sit and you can kind of become, your whole mind body can kind of become your own laboratory to begin to understand what's happening here. To begin to understand, you know, how do I... Uh, create suffering for myself. How do I? What is? What are my? What's my top five? Right, top five topics to suffer about, strategies to suffer. And this is where the reason why meditation is so important, I think, in daily practice is so important, is that we're all a little bit different in that way, right? We all have our own personalities. We all have our own different memories. We all have our own different conditioning. Our own upbringing our own relationships to substances, to behaviors, to people. And we can kind of talk to each other. But we don't have a lot of honest, there's not a lot of honest conversations going on in this world, I don't think. No. Not really. Sometimes. Usually we have to pay someone $200 an hour to have an honest conversation. (laughs) You know, behind the door with the little noise machine at the floor so nobody can hear. (laughs) Which I do every two weeks. I'm not knocking it. I'm a participant in that, but I think it's kind of fucking crazy <laughs> that that's what it's come to. But you know, we have to. We have to, to some degree, if we're going to understand the system that's being offered, we have to be honest with ourselves. So I think, to some degree, when we look at the first noble truth and mindfulness and ahipasako and come and see for yourself, come have a look, come check it out. The reason why the practice, I think, is so hard, kind of all the way down the line, is that we're constantly being encouraged to take an honest look at the difficulties that we're having in our life. 
you know, and that's not that's not always pretty. You know, that's oftentimes either there's often a sense of vulnerability, or maybe even shame of like we don't want our difficulties to be our difficulties. We want to trade. With, I want to trade. I want to trade with this person. Their difficulties aren't as bad as my difficulties, and we get into comparing our difficulties against their difficulties and how not fair that is. And that, none of that really makes anything better, ever. It's just a nice little pleasant distraction. You, know, you ever meet somebody who's like, whose conditions are so much better than yours and you just kind of hate them a little bit? Or maybe jealous or envious. It's like, man, that is not fair. They're not even enjoying their pleasant conditions. If I had their conditions, I would be totally grateful. <laughs> Greedy, entitled son of a bitch. You ever meet that? It's just like, it's hard. It's hard to have a compassionate perspective on that, right? So we have to, you know, we have to... And also the other thing that makes it so hard is that the difficulties in our life often change. So again, with this impermanence of experience, things are changing. What was difficult for me last week might be different than what's difficult for me right now. My difficulties are always changing. I get upgrades, I get downgrades... Like, I've been practicing for a long time and I suffer from the delusion that it's supposed to be like this. But it's like this and then it's like this, and then it's like this and it goes down. That's bullshit. I should be, you know, things should be getting better. Well, who said that? Who, who, where did you get that idea from? The Buddha certainly didn't teach it. You know, want to improve. So the... Um, you know, if we're going to take a look at what's going on and we're going to try to come to terms with the issue at hand, the life that we're having, we really have to be very clear and honest and um, aware, mindful of what it is that gets us. What's, what's the problem? What's, what's, you know, what's eating your lunch every day? You know? And then, you know, then we, ha- we have to be aware of some, of some of the ways in which we're causing that. And this is hard because, you know, that, what that does is it keeps the ball in your court, but it's a really a big uh, ask for us to take completely full responsibility for the way that we relate to our experience, which sometimes can get really hard. It's like, do I really have to take responsibility for everything? It's, it's, at some point, it has to be somebody else's fault. <laughs> and then we get into blaming and comparing and hating, and cynicism, and cynical, and shit-talking, and all the events and strategies that I love so much that have never done me any good ever one time, mm-hmm. except for a little sort of pleasant hit of you know, contempt. Yeah. Anybody here a fan of the emotion of contempt? It's one of the five basic... Actually, they down. They got rid of contempt. It's not in the top five. It's in the top seven now. Which one of my friends, Eve Ekman, who's an emotional researcher, her dad's Paul Ekman, who's a big emotional researcher. I, I was very upset that they removed contempt because it's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> well, you can't take that off the list, man. Contempt. If you get rid of contempt, what am I going to do with all this shame? Feel my shame? Are you crazy? I want to use contempt. I want to want to 
uh, repress that one. I'm not interested in my shame so much. Right. So we really have to, and so if you just do this, right, you'll be busy most of the time. This is not a small ask. Right? But then when you start to, you know, start to kind of get these knots that seem like they're, you ever try to, I was with a four-year-old the other day and he had his Chuck Taylor Converse shoes on and they were like knotted like like I don't even know how he got that many knots in him and I was like it's like this is like meditation practice trying to get the knots out and then you get it loose and you get excited you're like oh I got it it's coming out mm-hmm. and then once you get the first two the other ones kind of open up that's kind of like that a little bit practice is like that we kind of can get into some of the ways in which we're super tight with fear or we're caught in the grips of something and, and then we get to kind of take a look at it and we kind of get to have an object oh that's what that is and I'm gonna, I got my blame thrower out, and I'm just like, who's next? <laughs> you know? You know, we start to understand these things, and we can kind of uh, take responsibility for them. You can recognize them and take responsibility for them. You know, there's a tremendous opportunity to be able to do something about that now. You have agency over that. And so, you know, the more that we practice mindfulness, the more that we sit and we understand these things, we kind of, this task, the reason why we want to do all of the things I just mentioned that you're probably like, I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> you know, it's so that we can be free from, from the suffering that comes from oftentimes these unconscious strategies that we have. The ways that we have unconscious bias or we have unconscious denial or unconscious minimizing, comparing, contrasting. We start to see that we can we can, we can be free from that. And, you know, once this sort of, once this becomes an acquired taste, uh, one of the things that, as a teacher over the last couple of years uh, that I've really enjoyed is working with people when they get to, when people get to that, maybe they sat a retreat, or usually this happens at the end of, the, of a people's first retreat, or they sit a retreat and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. I realized how one, you know, it's so weird. Buddhist teachers are a little sadistic, you know, like you, somebody will come off a retreat, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea I was this unhappy. And I'm like, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> you know how unhappy you are now. It's like now you can do something about it, you know. Because that's the problem with awareness, right? What comes with awareness? Awareness. And, you know, it's not always pretty. You know, it's like awareness uh, doesn't care what it makes you aware of which is the nature of mindfulness. It's a non it's a objective. You know, so practice, what we want our, our mindfulness practice to be is we, we want to tune it up enough so that we, we can begin to reflect like a mirror would reflect, right? Like think of a mirror, right? Whatever you put in front of the mirror, what does it do? It just reflects the object back. It doesn't distort it. It doesn't try to make it look good. You know, it doesn't try to polish a turd. You know, it's just kind of like, here's what it is. <laughs> In mindfulness, when we turn that mirror towards our direct experience and we start to be able to investigate our lives and what's happening, we just kind of can get oftentimes a, a nice, clear representation for what it is that is arising. Right? And that gives us the opportunity to do something different. And then you come and see for yourself. Come take a look. Right? Is this useful? Does this have benefit. You know, do we like the direction that this is going? Um, and some people don't. 
You know, this isn't this isn't the interesting thing about Dharma practices. This isn't for everybody, and it's not the only way. You know, I mean, there's lots of different practices and religions. I mean, the world is like you know, go to the go look at the spirituality section in a bookstore, or Google the word spirituality. God forbid. You know, there's there's, there's a lot of different ways to go about life. And I, I certainly don't believe or don't teach that Buddhism is the one way and the only way to, to find meaning and purpose. And I think there's many, many people over the course of the thousands of years that people have been around who have led happy, meaningful lives who knew nothing about Buddhism. It happens. But for some of us, and, and for you know myself for sure, when I was first introduced to the practice, it was the first thing where I felt like somebody took a mirror and said, hey, check it out. And I was like, that's totally what's happening to me. You know, it made a lot of sense to me the first time. And I oftentimes joke about this. You know, I don't think I've ever had a meditation sit as profound as the first time I meditated 23 years ago. And, and I joke about it because, it, and I say it every time I teach meditation, when I, when I was introduced to the practice, I was 19 and I was in so much suffering. I'd, been, I'd barely made it through my teen years. I'd been through a lot of loss, a lot of death, a lot of people that I knew died who were close to me. I saw a lot of shit that I probably didn't need to see. And, you know, I was just, I couldn't get out of that. I was either completely blown out, dissociated, or I was just like thinking it over and over. I couldn't unhook from my mind. And so because I was so trapped in my mind, whatever was happening in my mind, I assumed that that's what the world was. So the world was unsafe, the world was cruel, the world was unfair. You know, I just lined it up. Well, if my mind is like this, that means life is like this. And, and it's just it's a big, you know, it just sucks. And why is everybody pretending like everything's okay? So I didn't do well. And then, you know, I, I, I met a Buddhist teacher who kind of articulated the Four Noble Truths in much of the same way that I did. And I was like, yeah, suffering... Gotcha. Totally get it. And then practicing meditation, being able to see for myself that I could take my attention out of my thinking mind and I could just move it over to my in-breath. I could listen to the sounds of the birds outside the window, whatever. And after about eight seconds of that, I was, I was, my, my nervous system relaxed a little bit. I was like, oh man. Whew. And of course, what would happen is my attention would go back into the story and the fear and the anger and the confusion. And then the teacher would say, when you recognize that your mind has wandered, just gently bring it back to the... You know, like I said, like we've all heard a million times. And then every time I did that, all the suffering in my mind crumbled like a house of cards. It was gone. Absolutely gone. Now it would come back again four seconds later, eight seconds later. But... Just in that movement of mind that I think we get from mindfulness practice initially, we usually all get it at some point relatively quickly. That is a radical, radical shift in perspective. You know, they call it metacognition in, in neuroscience, the ability to think about thinking or to be able, the ability to watch the mind with the mind. It's not a very profound application. You just don't pay attention to that and you pay attention to something else and now you can see that. But that becomes the basis for mindfulness. Now you have this ability to be mindful of experience. You'll be able to have objective monitoring. 
which is just basically what mindfulness is. Right? But for me, that was like, that, that, was, that was really useful. So that way when I would suffer in my mind, I could, pause, I could stop and go, okay, I'm doing it again. And I would just readjust. Okay, I'm doing it again. And I would just readjust. And what happens is like that Viktor Frankl, I think it's Viktor Frankl who has that statement that between stimulus and response, there's a gap. And then that gap lies our ability to choose. And so that's what mindfulness gives us. It gives us this gap, this space to see that we have options, we have choices. It's not black and white. It's not like, do I need to do this or do I need to do that? It's like, well, I could do this, that, and what's, there's other things too. There's other options on the table. But oftentimes we have to be able to make these kind of psychological adjustments in our attention or in our way of looking at things and being able to see the mind with the mind which allows us to have a whole new way of going about things. You know, so for me, there's been all these little events where uh, mindfulness has been so transformative and that I continue to, that primary school, that, excuse me, that primary tool of being able to adjust my attention uh, has been the, you know, the most profound of all the tools. And when you do that, then you can start to do other uh, things with the mind and starting to understand that really from the Buddhist, psych- from Buddhist psychology, and I think that modern neuroscientists would, would agree, especially the emotional intelligence researchers, that you know, this basic theory that whatever you pay attention to gets bigger. That sort of mind 101. Whatever you pay attention to gets bigger. Does that make sense? So if I pay attention to the future and fear arises, if I pay attention to that fear, it gets big, and now that fear becomes worry. If I pay attention to that worry, that worry becomes bigger and becomes expectation. And that pay attention to that becomes bigger and bigger. And before you know it, I'm living in a van down by the river by next summer. <laughs> right? So if I don't pay, if I move my attention to my breath, my nervous system relaxes, that becomes bigger. And this term attention that we get from the Buddhist paradigm is a term called manasakara, which means making in the mind. And so whatever you pay attention to, that's what you make in the mind. And if I look at this TV screen, I make that in my mind. That's why I love doing that when I go to a restaurant and there's different screens. Of course, there's never anything I want to watch, but I kind of like to go from screen to screen to just see what my perception and attitude is about what's on. It's like just like meditation. Whatever I pay attention to, that's what my mind makes. That's what I frame up. I'm framing that up in any particular moment. I'm making that. Now, if I like what I'm making and it's useful and true, then maybe I should stay with that. That's a good making in the mind. That's what's called wise attention, yanasomanasakara, which is the goal of the practice, actually, is to be able to pay attention in a way that's compassionate, wise, skillful, make more of that. If what you're making in your mind is suffering, then just move somewhere else. But it's so interesting one thing that I've noticed about myself and many of the people that I've worked with that have reported me is that for some reason we have this weird loyalty to our suffering. I'm real loyal to it. I, don't want, I just don't want to abandon it, you know? It's like, well, well my, I don't want my suffering to be all alone. I'm so loyal to that story. And this is where the, the aspect of self becomes so troubling is that uh, we, we oftentimes in our suffering we most of the time, if we're honest, are the main character. 
And so if we, if we end that story, then, then what's, what, what's going to be left of me? Right? Who am I going to be if I'm not this? You know, I've worked with drug addicts for many, many years, and one of the things that people struggle with when they get clean or they get sober is like, well, why don't I even, well, this is who I am. If I'm not that, then what am I, you know, I'm so scared of what I'm going to become, I'd rather just be so loyal to my shitty, drug-addicted lifestyle because I don't know what it's going to look like if I'm not that. Right? And I think that that happens a lot of times with our suffering is we're so identified with it. We're, we're, we're so bought into the drama of it that we, we don't want to give it up for some reason or we think that we just haven't thought about it enough. Right? Just haven't figured it out quite yet. And a lot of that which, which feeds that fire, which that burning, that, that's, that sort of uh, is the way in which we toss logs on that fire is we just can't break free from the thinking associated with it. It's interesting. I spend uh, my girlfriend has a four-year-old, so one of the key people in my life now is four, and he's very unreasonable. <laughs> like he's fucking impossible to reason with. So like there's some dukkha, right? And it's just like amazing. He'll like fall off his bike and bang his head on a log and like actually be like I'd be like oh my god is he hurt and he gets up and he's totally fine are you okay oh, I'm good I'm fine back on the bike down the trail no problem no big deal but if he asks for a cookie and you say no forget it fucking mayhem you'd swear like you're looking around at anybody watching people would think that, that we're torturing this kid because it's <coughs> suffering right? so there's a big difference between pain and suffering Right? And that's that I didn't get what I want. And that's totally unacceptable, it's totally unfair, and I'm gonna throw it I'm gonna annoy the shit out of this guy until he gives me a cookie. <laughs> and as it becomes this like, you know, it's like this battleground of like, do I give in, do I give in? How long can I take this before I just say, fuck it, give him a cookie? <laughs> right? And if I give him the cookie, I'm training him to say that just be a totally unpleasant, torture some little guy and you'll get what you want. So I don't want to encourage that behavior either. So it's like advanced practice for me. <laughs> but it's so funny because it's like, you know, nobody taught him that. That's just how it is, isn't it? That's how we are. And so a lot of this, this suffering, this anguish, this self, you know, so much of it is created in the mind. And when you start to add emotional experience, which I haven't talked about so much, when the thoughts and the emotions and they sort of buddy up and team up on you, whew, it can get pretty bad in there, can it? But when we start to recognize that actually it can get pretty bad in there, but the adjustment that we need to make to get out of there oftentimes is just a kind of don't look over there, look over here. And that side of the room vanishes. Now I just have Scott over here and the dog. But if I look back over here, I get you guys again. You guys are okay. But you get my analogy, right? We just have to move. And so don't underestimate and it's so hard not to. But don't underestimate the power of, of just the practice in, in and of itself. You know, just the daily practice, the, the million times you went from your mind back to your breath, you went from your mind back to your breath. That is a, a, of utmost importance because that is the strongest muscle in the liberation of liberating yourself from suffering process. And, and the last thing I'll say, I've said this many times before, but one thing I've noticed over time is that 
you know, what starts to happen is the more that you show up for the present moment, which oftentimes can just be a grind, the more that you show up for the present moment, the present moment actually starts to show up for you. To the point where you're just suffering, you're losing it, you're out of your mind, and, and all of a sudden something happens and you're like, you're breathing and you're like, oh, you're like, oh, I'm a fucking psycho right now. Cool. I don't have to do that. You know, kind of sh- the practice starts to show up for us and bails us out because that, um, that, that muscle, that little movement has, you've done it enough of time that it's become sort of automated in the system become an automatic movement. And this is again where when we start to rec- when you start to recognize that for yourself, now you might hear me say it and go, oh, that sounds about right. But when you start to recognize it for yourself and see the benefit in that, uh, it just allows you to kind of continue to stay on the practice and to engage in the practice in a very pragmatic and, and regular way. Um, that I think that if you find yourself in that place or if you've been in that place or you hope to be in that place, um, it's a good spot to, to be in. Uh, and sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And, uh, but that's the nature of this, this whole uh, teaching of the Buddha is uh, come and see, have a look for yourself. And if you find it to be true and useful, great. And if you don't, no problem. There's plenty of other uh, options out there. So I offer that for your reflection this evening and uh, so thank you for your attention and I'm happy to hear any questions you might have about this idea or uh, anything at all. So thank you.